This is Dylan FM, the podcast that goes deep into the work and world of Bob Dylan. If you love Dylan, you're in the right place with your host, Craig Danuloff. In 1972, just over 50 years ago, the first two serious books on Bob Dylan were released. Before then, Dylan was documented primarily in magazine articles, although there was at least one slim paperback book that was out before 1970. But the two books that came out in 72 weren't the kind of books that were typically written about musicians or pop culture figures of any kind. One was a serious biography. It was just called Bob Dylan. It was written by Anthony Scaduto. That book was notable because Dylan cooperated. So Scaduto talked to him, spent time with everyone in his life, and they were told to cooperate. Even his parents were interviewed. None of that ever happened again. The result, however, is a great Dylan biography, well worth reading, albeit one that now covers only about one quarter of his life. The other book that came out in 1972, in the UK at least, and then 1973 in the US and Japan, was even more radical. It wasn't a biography but a serious literary analysis, a book of commentary and criticism of the kind that had, until then, been reserved for serious literature. Surely there was nothing in pop music that required or deserved scholarly analysis. A young writer just out of college disagreed. His name was Michael Gray. Gray felt that what he was hearing on Bob Dylan's early records wasn't simply the work of a folk musician or a pop star, but rather the work of a serious artist and work that was worthy of and perhaps demanded a more penetrating and critical analysis. There are shelves full of these kinds of analysis of all kinds of bands and musical artists today. But in 1972, there weren't any. Michael Gray's book, Song and Dance Man, The Art of Bob Dylan, was the very first. And 50 years later, there are a lot of people who will tell you it is still the best book ever written about Bob Dylan. I recently talked to Dylan author Keith Miles about Song and Dance Man. Here's what he had to say. Song and Dance Man is probably one of the most important books written about Bob Dylan. People forget that the road to the Nobel Prize was very long, took many years, and began with that book, began with Michael Gray. Other reviewers have been equally impressed. Rolling Stone called it monumental, endlessly illuminating. The Evening Standard called it the definitive and critical work. David Hadju, author of Positively Fourth Street and a guest on FM Pods when we talked about the philosophy of modern song, said it is the most penetrating and clear-headed work on Dylan's work ever done, a monumental achievement. Song and Dance Man was revised from that original 1972 edition again in 1982 and again 18 years later in the year 2000. It grew to be a massive book of over 900 pages, but in the year 2010, it went out of print. Now it's back, but this time it's not a 900-page book because really, who wants that? Instead, it's being released as a series, the 50th anniversary series. 
It has the full text of the 900-page volume, every word of it, including the prodigious footnotes, broken down logically into three books of reasonable size and price. The first of these hit the shelves at Amazon this week, and two others are coming out later this year. Which brings us to this podcast, which is a new mini-series that we'll be running alongside the regular episodes here on Dylan FM. This is the bonus track, or the commentary for the book. We're going to walk through Song and Dance Man, share some exceptional passages, and Michael will expand on his thoughts and answer some questions. This is a great companion to the book. If you have a copy and read it long ago, or a preview or a teaser, if you don't have it yet and want to go order one. I certainly hope you do. It's available at Amazon, and there are links in the show notes. You can buy the book in print, or on Kindle. This episode starts at page one, chapter one. We present Michael with some of his own writing about Dylan in the Village, Dylan's first album, and the very early songs of Bob Dylan. And he responds with his thoughts about what he's written in the book, and in some cases, what he thinks today, 50 years after many of those words were written. I'd like to thank our friend Michael Hacker, the voice behind a Bob Dylan primer, which is a great podcast also available here on the FM Pods Network, for reading the passages from Song and Dance Man for today's episode. And now, here's our talk with Michael Gray about Chapter 1 of Song and Dance Man, The Art of Bob Dylan. I love the way this begins because the unique aspects of the book come out very quickly in, oh, yeah? in, this, in this passage. When Dylan first went east and arrived in New York at the start of the 60s, the repertoire and styles of delivery he brought with him provided a culture shock, not only to Sinatra-tuned audiences, but also to the patrons of the many small folk clubs, then in bloom around Greenwich Village. As he recalls the latter's reaction, it ran as follows. You sound like a hillbilly. We want folk singers here. The point, made here with a characteristic lightness of irony, is of course that Dylan was a folk singer, and to learn how his early work was received is to understand the various misconceptions that obtained in New York at that time, and which, from New York, spread, though not back into the Appalachians, via college circuits and out across the Atlantic. To sound like a folk singer, you were supposed to be smoothly ingenuous, angry, and above all, sensitive. And you go on to talk about Peter, Paul, and Mary and some of the other acts that Dylan was put up next to or stood next to when he arrived in the village. So let's start there with your thoughts uh, and that characterization of what was unique about Bob kind of the second he stepped into Greenwich Village. First of all, I think um, that introduction to the uh, chapter is a little on the um, on the arrogant side, you know, because there, there was more variety in the people in Greenwich Village than that account gives credit for. You know, I mean, there were people who were very real as well. I mean, there were people like Dave Van Ronk, the mayor of McDougal Street. And, you know, very famously, Dylan stole his arrangement of House of the Rising Sun straight from Van Ronk just before Van Ronk was going to record it. He'd heard 
Dylan had heard Van Ronk sing it live and he rushed into the CBA, the Columbia Record Studio and did it first. And there it was. So uh, there was more variety in the people there. But it's true what Dylan says, that, um, that some people were very rigid about what genre of folk music they were prepared to be a performer of. Uh, that's one thing, you know, people who sang northern forest work songs wouldn't sing sea shanties, and people who sang southern mountain songs wouldn't sing Irish ballads. So there was that. That was one kind of rigidity. There was a lot of rigidity. Uh, and the other thing was that, that a lot of these people didn't think it was their job to write songs. In fact, they thought it was not at all the done thing, you know. What they thought was that their, their job was to try to get back to the most immaculate version of a traditional folk song that they could possibly unearth. And that was, you know, the older it was, the more authentic they were. The writing songs was a no-no for many of these people. Uh, so that was another way in which Dylan was distinctive. He, uh, he had this devotion to Guthrie, and he had honed his voice partly on Guthrie's. And so he had a rougher voice than all the Peter, Paul and Mary's, and also a more rougher kind of uh, stage presence and, and approach than a lot of the people who were trying to be very purist. But also, you know, he, that was a kind of rock and roll attitude that he brought to this, you know. He'd had an electric guitar and been devoted to Little Richard and the others before he took up with folk music. I mean, you know, he, he realised that folk music had in some ways much more to offer than one o'clock, two o'clock, three o'clock rock, or, you know, I love you, please be true. But nevertheless, he came to folk music from teenage rock and roll fandom. And many of those people who were there in Greenwich Village with a small name for themselves and an acoustic guitar had, had not come out of that genre. Or if they had, they'd certainly pretended they hadn't. It's interesting how the characteristics we think of as Dylan-esque, you know, decades later, were kind of there in terms of the seemingly not caring what, what people thought and being willing to go yes. against the grain and, and the self-confidence, you know, to yes. do it against what he had to hear the various criticisms we all hear about, I mean, him at the time, not even him, the yeah. superstar, just him, the little weirdo. <laughs> and yet he, he, he forged, you know, straight ahead, you know, reflecting on his own learnings and changing when he wanted to, but not, you know, not giving a damn, as he would later say. Absolutely. And, and the other thing is that, uh, you know, part of what he was doing when he arrived in Greenwich Village was sitting at the feet of some of these old blues singers. You know, he wasn't, uh, he wasn't just uh, looking at who was the biggest name or, or who was the, uh, the guy who got the, uh, the most young women in the folk club audience. He, he was sitting at the feet of uh, John Lee Hooker and, and um, blind Gary Davis and so on. You think that was unique, meaning that he sought them out and spent that time? That's, a, that's an observation I hadn't heard before. 
Well, when Sam Charters published his book, Country Blues, in 1959, what he was saying was, everyone knows about the, the electric blues from Chicago after the war, the muddy water stuff, but there's this whole ocean of pre-war blues uh, from the 20s and 30s. And the thing about these marvellous old records, Charters was saying, is that these people are not from Mars, you know. They, they were Americans, and they, some of them may still be among us. Uh, and his book inspired a whole bunch of young, white uh, folk enthusiasts, blues enthusiasts, to go down to the South, to the Deep South, and try to find, still alive, these old guys. And there were many successes. And so, no, Dylan wasn't the only one interested in these people, but he was seriously interested in watching their hands on the guitar when they were performing in, in folk clubs, the ones that had been rediscovered. Many of them had given up being musicians. They certainly, they'd pawned their guitar in the Depression and gone back to being a janitor. You know, they certainly were surprised to find that there was this young white enthusiasm for their very early work and, um, and very surprised, pleasantly surprised in many cases, to find that they could make some money on a folk club stage. We're going to go forward just a page to your talk about the Dylan album, the first album that you mentioned in terms of Columbia Studios, and you say this, Yet what comes through from the album as a whole is a remarkable skill and more than a hint of a highly distinctive vision. In the context of what was happening at the time, American folk culture all but obliterated and a stagnating folk cult established as if in its place. Dylan's first album can hardly be faulted. It is a brilliant debut, a performer's tour de force, and served as a fine corrective for Greenwich Village. It was the opposite of a feat. Oh, yeah. Well, you can accuse it of being derivative, but you can't accuse it of being a feat. It, um, it's got a lot of that raw quality. It's a, lo a lot of it is him trying to sound as old as possible, even though he's only 20 when he's recording it. And, um, I mean, I, I think I'm partially wrong here as well, because I think that, this is Dave, this is what I'm saying in that in that quote is doing Dave Van Ronk a disservice because he was he was also a fine corrective to uh, the kind of Peter Paul and Mary stuff you know and there's all the world there's more difference between Puff the Magic Dragon and any Dave Van Ronk album than there is between any Dave Van Ronk album and Bob's first album. But nevertheless, you know, if you if you think about what Albert Grossman, Dylan's manager, was also managing, he was managing Peter Paul and Mary, and you know, I'm sure they were very nice people, but uh, but they were not real in the same way that that Bob was, and they were not mining the work of old bluesmen in the way that Van Ronk and Dylan, and no doubt others who never became famous at all, were doing. Does it surprise you that that album 
the, the reaction that it got. And there's two things, looking back at what happened at the time, and mm-hmm. then maybe talk more about looking back now and, and with the benefit of those 60 years and seeing how much of what we now know to be Dylan was really there. Well, I think, I think uh, it doesn't surprise me that it wasn't a successful album at the time. It doesn't surprise me at all because um, who was this guy? You know, there's this there's this album with this very chubby faced little urchin on the cover, with his Huck Finn cap uh, uh, and his chubby cheeks, and um, and inside there's all this "See that my grave is kept clean" stuff. So you know, there's a there's a disjunction there that. Um, uh, and what was there to uh, to make it a, a successful album? How many people were looking for that kind of thing? Whereas, obviously, when we come to the second album, when we come to Freewheeling, which is full of these ex- remarkable songs that he was writing so fast and so prolifically, clearly that's that's on a whole different level, and still is. Um, I mean, I, I you know I like the first album. But it's never going to be one of anybody's top ten best Bob Dylan albums. Yeah, it's it's kind of interesting, given the sequence of events of how Bob is universally revered as a songwriter, and yet those who really love him think about the singing and the communication abilities and the projection more. That yeah. on that first album, you know, there's I guess two originals, if I'm remembering correctly, and yet yeah. um, even after sixty years. The fact that it holds up, I want to say at all, but that it's, it's you know, it may not be the top of Bob Dylan album, which would be a hard accomplishment, but as you say, it's very enjoyable and, and there's just a lot there. It's Yeah, uh, and, and the two songs that are there, Talking New York and um, Song to Woody, I mean, Talking New York sums up what he was claiming was his difference beautifully in that very simple you sound like a hillbilly. We want folk singers here. I mean, that's that's a marvelously economical, biting uh, summary of, of him trying to big up his own uniqueness and and the way that he was misunderstood and so on. Um, and then talk and then song to Woody. Well, it's just it's just the most mature considered work and it's delivered with that considered maturity there's there's you know how many people at that age wanting to write a song saying hey you're my idol and i'm unworthy uh, to follow in your footsteps who else would write at that age a song so beautifully modulated and poised and yet so obviously sincere. It's a great song. Well, let me let me read a, a passage about it that you wrote. Clearly, to say he'd been hitting some hard traveling too is not the last thing Dylan would like to be able to do. It is with those final lines, which get their special strength, not just from the understatement, but from the carefully clipped reluctance of the cadence that we get a fresh focus on the whole theme of the song. At the same time, we still hear the echoes of all those delicate rushes 
of confidentiality which, throughout the lyric, establish its tone. Other aspects of the song also contribute to its appeal. There is the frank, if implicit, statement of what is, on Dylan's part, a plea for an innocent dropout and the concern to find a new allegiance to the hard-traveling ethos. Again, there is a delicacy in handling this. A balance struck in perceiving both the harsh reality and the romantic flavor of this ethos. The song not only reflects Guthrie faithfully, but assesses his real but disappearing America from Dylan's, the young man's, perspective. We are offered a highly intelligent understanding of the subject. So I, I want, Michael, to talk about two things. That, the quote specifically in Dylan's performance of the end of that song, but also I think this is a really great paragraph to talk about what you did in Song and Dance Man of, as you said, looking at Dylan as someone worthy of, of serious analysis and criticism because that paragraph unlocking what's inside a verse or two of Dylan is the kind of thing that maybe no one had read in 1972. Yeah, thank you. I think that's true. I mean, I'm talking there about, for example, about the the wistful way that he talks about uh, the people who have done the hard traveling. Here's to Cisco and Sonny and Lead Belly too, and all the good people who traveled with you. You know, on the one hand, he knows perfectly well that it's no longer the 1930s. And, um, and he says this elsewhere, doesn't he, in, in one of the early poems on the back of one of the comparatively early albums. He, he, he talks about, you know, who needs me today to, uh, to be fighting this stuff? So on the one hand, he's aware that uh, it's not the same era as this travelling that he's, that he's talking about. But on the other hand, he's also admitting that there's something very romantic about it, that there's something very, un, if you like, very unrealistically un romantic about it. He kind of, he manages to suggest that he knows that really it would be very hard living that way, you know. And I'm sure that he has in mind Woody Guthrie's autobiography, Bound for Glory, yeah, which is full of uh, tales of uh, traveling on freight trains and hopping rides and, and, you know, being having to run away from guys with big clubs in their hands, trying to beat off the the bums and the hobos, you know, and gathering round with, with people who are, you know, coughing their lungs up whilst trying to find another cigarette end somewhere up on the ground near the, near the campfire that they're hoping will keep them warm, you know. It's not all great, living the Woody Guthrie life. And, and Dylan is managing to say that very beautifully while still, you know, he's partly, we couldn't have known this at the time, but we know now that, you know, he was this middle-class kid from uh, whose father owned a sort of hardware store. He was a middle-class kid with a very uh, comfortable home in, in uh, Hibbing, Minnesota. There was no way that, uh, that he needed 
to go hard traveling. But all that, all the romance of it, he yearns for it. At the same time, he's so mature that he can confess that it's that it's not going to be happening. And at the very end, the very last thing that I'd want to do is to say I'd been hitting some hard traveling too. That's that's a double-edged, a double-edged lie, because he's made it clear by then that one of the things he'd really like to do would be to say he'd done some hard traveling too. Uh, and yet, along with it goes his, you know, kind of humble recognition that they did it and he hasn't, and he hasn't had to. How much of, of the songwriting genius, the songwriting accomplishment that has come from him is evidence there? Meaning, you know, that album and that song, maybe not in real time to people, but now these passages you're talking about are as good as any, you know, Dylan passages. I mean, you can argue nuance, yes. but they, they're, they're worlds apart from most songwriters um, yes. in, all the, in all the stuff you're unpacking. Um, yes. It's kind of amazing and, and almost a nice little foreshadowing that, you know, two songs, but this song particularly, this is the song on the album that, that he wrote that everybody reacts to, that even in the seed, we see it all, you know, it's all there. Yes, absolutely. I mean, there are, you know, there are some of the um, early protest songs that don't show much evidence of that unique skill or maturity at all. Um, uh, paths of victory, for example, or um, or uh, I mean, there's not that much skill in the times they are changing. It seems to me either. Um, but paths of victory uh, and Al Emmett Till and the Ballad of Donald White. There's not. There's none of it there. There's none of the mature uniqueness that that is imprinted all through Song to Woody. Um, and there again, the other thing in, in terms of performance is that um, some of the songs on the first album, you know, I, I, I criticise them because he's, he's trying to sound terribly old. In other words, he's trying to claim all that experience. And he's a 20-year-old kid, you know. But on the other hand, there are other songs where he makes that I'm a very old man singing uh, stance absolutely convincing. One of the outtakes from Freewheeling, Moonshiner. It's a completely immaculate performance in, on every level from start to finish, and he has that. I've called it that calm center of self. There's no rushing. There's no emphasizing. There's nothing declamatory about it, you know, and a sort of hysterical declamatoriness is what so much pop music has, has comprised for at least the last 30 years. And, and here is this very young man with none of it. Moonshiner is a, a totally immaculate performance. 
and and just astonishing that it should have been left off the album. But there we are. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't, nobody, and as much Dylan as the rest of us, none of us can explain how he could arrive with such creative maturity so early, so very early on. But the evidence, the evidence is there in Song to Woody alone. You mentioned protest songs, which is perfect, because what the book does uh, in, the, in the bulk of the first bunch of chapters is talk about Dylan against or relative to folk tradition, literature, blues, and a bunch of other categories, literature itself. So here's a little bit of what you say about, um, about his protest song. This, this echoes something of what you just said. In fact, of course, the protest songs are rarely of outstanding quality. Dylan's performances of them can do little more than partly compensate, as it were, for the lack of anything in them but messages. It is not just the cliches that mar these songs, but, along with their obviousness, the assumption that cliché is necessary for emphasis, the assumption that the listener must be spoon-fed. Dylan, the writer, is giving us rhetoric, not art. In contrast, where societal comment is present in his later work, as for instance in Desolation Row, Dylan's critique is always offered in a form dictated by a most formidable art and not by an anxiety based on lack of trust in the listener. Trust, trusting the listener is something which uh, is very important in Dylan's work. It seemed to me the first album that I encountered myself as a, as a young man, as a student, was the fourth album, Another Side Of, uh, the last solo album until the 1990s. And um, on that album, uh, you know, it took me a while to get used to his voice. Um, but when I did, uh, get used to it, uh, and realized what a superbly intelligent, nuanced instrument it was. One one of the very striking things was was how completely he trusted that that he was getting his point across, however subtly he might have been saying it. And um, you know, there's there's the, he he abolishes the gulf between the, the grand performer and the oiks in the audience. Um, he just speaks so directly to you. Um, and, uh, and so trusting the audience like that is, he does it more than, more than any other performer I can, I can think of. I mean, although I think possibly, you know, in more recent times, his, it, it, it's one of the things that he has changed uh, in our consciousness is what's possible with, with popular music. It's possible to trust the audience instead of them just being told how to receive stuff. And, um, and, and the trouble with some of those protest songs is that he over-explains them, i.e. he doesn't trust the audience. You know, I mean, I, another one that really I, I really wince at is um, is the one about John Brown went off to war. You know, he gives he gives John Brown's mother a really hard time, 
it doesn't, it doesn't, John Brown is not, never becomes a real individual. He's just a, he's just a cipher. He's just, you know, this is my, today's protest against patriotism and, and the unthinkingness of people sending their children off to war. Well, you know, it's a huge subject and it's a small song. So talk for a minute about the um, method or device, uh, the choice to look at Dylan's work in this initial set of chapters comparatively to folk literature, blues, rock, and, and so forth. Well, it seemed to me that uh, when, I, when I was first listening to him, uh, uh, what astonished me was partly um, the length of some of the songs, because as I say, the fourth album was the first one I listened to. And, and so there we have um, Chimes of Freedom and My Back Pages, for example. And uh, these are very, these are lengthy songs. And uh, by, by, you know, I came to this from rock music myself. I came to it from rock and roll. Um, and hit singles were two and a half, three minutes. And Bob was singing longer things. Than that. But also, every time he brought out a new album, he sounded completely different. And, and no one else did that. Yeah, everyone else had a, had a voice and they used it the same. And maybe when they got older and wearier, they declined a bit, like, you know, Sinatra. But uh, Elvis Presley started sounding more like Bing Crosby. But um, but but you know Bob 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 sounded younger, of course, as 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 he progressed through the nineteen sixties, at least until John Wesley Harding. Anyway, but what was striking too was that uh, was that he was using. He was drawing upon all these different traditions. He, he presents himself first as a folk singer, as far as his career goes. So I had to look at how he fitted in with, you know, not only Greenwich Village, but the actual folk tradition, as it, as it were. And so I look at various strands of that, of that kind of stuff, cowboy music and, uh, and, and so on. But obviously, uh, he very soon starts doing something radical with rock music, with rock and roll. He gives it words that matter, among other things. And so obviously there had to be a chapter about how he relates to rock music, how he comes out of a tradition of rock and roll and does something extraordinary with it. He makes it matter. He, he I think it's Ricks, isn't it? Christopher Ricks, who says that he he combines the force of poetry with the power of rock and roll. I think the force of poetry is Rick's phrasing. And then quite clearly, you know, he keeps, uh, if you, I was studying English literature, so I knew that there were, there were relationships here, uh, that, that, uh, that this was a very literate person who was writing these songs. And I was being trained to uh, pay close attention to the text, often of a Victorian novel, the greatest novel in the English language, uh, Middlemarch by George Eliot. And, uh, you know, it, 
it was clear to me that Dylan's work was capable of bearing the weight of that kind of close to the text scrutiny. You know, he wasn't just grabbing words here and there. He was, um, he was a real artist, a literary artist. And yet, you know, I think I say right at the very beginning, very, very close to the very beginning anyway, that his words are not poems on the page. They are, the words are parts of songs. And the music dictates things about the way the words are organized that, that, that would be different if they were words on the page. And so, of course, does what Dylan does with his voice. So anyway, um, yeah, folk, rock, literature, it, um, he's, he's right there doing something interesting and radical with all of these different traditions. And yeah, that's what, um, that's what the first volume of this 50th anniversary series is about. I hope you've enjoyed this chat about just four small passages from Chapter 1 of Song and Dance Man, The Art of Bob Dylan. Volume 1 of the new 50th anniversary series, which is called Language and Tradition, is available now at Amazon, in print and on Kindle worldwide. As the passages you've heard today and Michael's comments indicate, the book provides an incredible discussion and analysis of what makes Dylan special. We all love these songs, but when you read someone articulate what's going on and why they impact us, it's just fascinating, and it helps you to appreciate the music even more and understand a lot more about what's there and why. We're going to do a bunch more of these podcasts, continuing to walk through the book, so dig out your old copy or order a new one. There are links in the show notes to buy one at Amazon. My thanks to Michael Gray for his patience in talking with us in such great detail. Thanks for listening. This show is a part of the FM Podcast Network. Visit us at fmpods.com.